Hello and welcome to What Were You Thinking? This is the 10th episode already and I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening and also for all the positive feedback that I've received. It's been overwhelming and totally brilliant and I have loved every minute so far and I'm looking forward to interviewing the great guests that I've got lined up. And for this episode, I am joined by Matt Ford, comedian, podcast host and author and his hugely entertaining book, Politically Homeless, is just out and a great read for anyone who loves politics. And he's also involved with Spitting Image and does the voices of Boris, Trump and Keir Starmer. And his impressions of them on this episode are hilarious. We also explore how his upbringing impacted his politics and discuss inequalities in Britain. And also some very funny, tipsy or perhaps drunken encounters with Tony Blair whilst he was Prime Minister. This episode is supported by Care International, who have an exciting event coming up with the Big Tent Ideas Festival on the 23rd of November. Now, you might know this already, but women and girls around the world are most affected by climate change as it increases existing gender inequalities. Women and girls have played important roles in securing climate change progress. Think of Greta Thunberg or Christiana Figueres, for example. And from business to politics, we know that more equal leadership results in more effective policies. However, we're seeing increasing barriers to women's equal political leadership, made worse by COVID as women are taking on increasing care work and in many scenarios are the first to be losing their jobs. If you're interested in these issues and want to hear inspiring stories from women who are making change in this area, make sure to join the event. You can find the details on bigtent.org.uk. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. Matt Ford, I have been looking forward to interviewing you so much, mainly because I love your podcast and you're obviously just incredibly funny. But also it's quite special because one of my first podcast experiences was being on your show. Um, so I'm feeling the pressure of the shoe <laughs> being on the other foot. Oh, not at all. No. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, you you were a fantastic guest. That you know the the feedback from that episode was was really really positive. So it was uh, it was oh. a pleasure having you on. Oh, that's nice to hear. So you have very recently published a book called Politically Homeless, which is largely, I think, inspired by your own political journey yeah um and well first I know you've been obsessed with politics I think you say since the age of nine uh which is totally normal and uh, <laughs> healthy <laughs> but what age did you get into it <laughs> a lot later than that actually a lot later than that yeah but still um, probably quite young I imagine I mean um well I'm still very young so <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah 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 that's what I meant <laughs> I'm joking but I mean I think for me it, it was university but it was uh yeah it was sort of more my accident I was more interested in international politics and then got sucked into the sort of more domestic oh that's really uh, cool though see that makes you sound really like you're sort of more intellectual and broader horizons <laughs> whereas mine's quite a sort of basic almost like football level engagement <laughs> Well, I very much disagree. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's quite admirable and and it says a lot about your upbringing as well to have been really engaged at, from the age of nine. So I think that's, I think that's really interesting. But yeah, tell me a bit more about how from the age of nine onwards, yeah. you started getting more involved in politics. I think, it, you know what, I actually think it was about the age of seven. I remember Thatcher resigning. Because I remember walking into, I grew up in Nottingham with my mum and my sister. My mum raised us in very difficult circumstances in the inner city, a, a single mum on benefits and, you know, not just financially disadvantaged, but the kind of moral judgment of single mums back then, which as I say in the book, you know, shouldn't absent fathers have been the issue? Like the parents that stick around to look after the kids are the heroes and mm. raising children even with two of you is is difficult. Just one of you, you know solely reliant on the government for money you know I can't imagine how hard it was and it, as a result we were living in an area where you know you had some wonderful neighbours but some very difficult neighbours as well and crime was a real issue and all sorts of things um so I remember Thatcher's name being around like in the ether you know people would talk about it and, and as a kid you would hear this name and it was almost like 
I didn't know who she was or, or, or even what it was. You just thought I would, it must be someone important or maybe it's a relative or something. And then I remember the day we were walking into Nottingham and this guy, this punk rocker, walked past us and just screamed, she's out, she's out, she's fucking out. <laughs> and um, I was like, whoa, you know, what is going on here? And uh, my mum was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought this guy was, you know, a scary looking thing. And my mum was just chatting away to him. They were getting on. I was like, what is it? It was just such a weird, vivid moment. And as he walked off, I kind of watched him walk past us. And he had, he'd cut the back out of his leather trousers so that his bum cheeks were exposed. And he had (laughs) eyes tattooed on each bum cheek. So I think that kind of like, as a memory, it was like such a, a weird thing to happen. And of all the people for me to sort of associate with this first political moment as this stranger with his bum hanging out of his trousers. I was like, oh, God, this is huge. And then everyone was like, oh, Thatcher's gone. I just really remember feeling then, certainly in our house, and it wasn't a hugely political house. My mum wasn't a member of any party. We didn't have political books in the house. We weren't talking about Hobbes and Marx and Luxembourg or anything like that. But um, we talked about values a lot. We went to church every Sunday. My mum had been a nun. So I I guess a sense of community and values were kind of around. Um, And then I just kind of felt that you know largely perhaps due to our own position but I didn't really feel like we were getting a decent crack at life from you know whatever the system was not that at the age of seven or eight or nine you kind of have a clear view of what that is um but I felt like there was injustice in the world and we were kind of at the thin end of the wedge and that a Labour government would give us a better crack of the whip I guess so then um yeah from then on I just became more and more and more transfixed with it and then at 14 Labour win in 1997 and and obviously by then you know that was just such a an incredible victory when even at that young age I'd only lived under a Tory government so it just felt like I was growing up at the right time really I think time and place played such a big part in how I got into politics and what my politics were. Hmm. And um, I know you feel strongly about inequality and improving opportunities and giving everyone a decent start in life you know that's that's clearly from what you describe that started very early on and it's really really stuck with you massively and I think you know and it's not a party political point because there's some things that parties do at certain times like right to buy actually is a really good idea it's just that the money should have been reinvested in the housing stock you know allowing working class people to to own a home that they'd put their life's earnings into I thought was a really good idea um so that element of it I never had a problem with and and you could see you know my granddad was so proud that he owned his house and this was a guy who'd worked in the rally factory in Nottingham making bikes his whole life working class not on much money um had fought for his country in World War II been a prisoner of war in Japan for for years um and then you know comes back you know the sacrifice that generation made for the nation you know, it was it was such a big deal for him to be able to afford to own his own home. And I saw the pride that people took in it. And, and that was, you know, to, to sort of, I always thought that was just a really good idea that the money should have been, you know, reinvested in the housing stock for those of, you know, those of us who couldn't have afforded to buy it. But um, yes, I think uh, at various points in history, either party has done certain things right um, in terms of levelling the playing field. And obviously this is a, a conversation we're having now about levelling up and it'd be interesting to see what actually happens. But you know, it can't be right that the biggest determinant of your outcomes in life is 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 the postcode where you're born. And that is just such a tragic judgment on, on us as a country, really, because you're basically saying no matter what you do, you're it's almost like you're you're fixed from the moment you're out of the womb, is your destiny is kind of sealed. And that I mean, no one should feel comfortable with that in a, in any way. You know, the conservatives love the idea of individual, you know, freedom and liberty. And it, it seems to kind of contradict that. So I still don't think as a country, Labour or the Tories really have, have ever really fully tackled deep systemic inequality in Britain. But I realise this is getting all very serious now. <laughs> so I'm sorry about yeah, but it. It is, it is, yeah, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, it's... It, part of this show is about sort of finding out a bit more about you know what shaped your thinking and this is clearly very much at the core of a lot of your thinking and also politics so it's 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 really interesting well it also uh, uh, also the other thing I would say is it was also it was a really educational in, in kind of two ways one was that I had a sense that the government weren't doing enough but equally you know I grew up around some people who could have worked and didn't 
And, you know, that that kind of sense has never left me, Was is that it's not just down to the government, you know, it's also down to the individual to do everything in your power. And I think I feel like a very driven person. And I think it came from that was that I was like, I don't, I can't live like this forever. You know, even as a kid, I was like, I can't live here for forever. You know, I, I need to kind of do something with my life. And I think in a weird way, I think of myself as advantaged because I think being economically disadvantaged puts a real fire in your belly, but I was really good to have an amazing mother. So I, w- I didn't, you know, I wasn't disadvantaged in terms of love or kindness or having healthy hot meals on the table or, you know, discipline, you know, which is important as well. So in a weird way, I was kind of living in a disadvantaged area, but as a result, my mum actually had a, had a brilliant start in life. One of the things, as you know, um, I ask all my guests is trying to find out about an individual or a person who has impacted their life or thinking in it in a substantial way. We obviously talked about your mum quite a bit already. Um, and maybe it is your mum, but I just wondered, that just made me think, you know, who throughout your, it doesn't have to be your early, you know, early life, but to date, who has been a real influence for you? I think it probably would be my mum. And I, I don't think I'd have said that a year ago. I'd have probably said Tony Blair or Tessa Jowell um, because they've had a big impact on me as well. But I think the more... I've grown up, the more I'm, it's really sort of dawned on me how much of my politics I got for my mum, even though we didn't, politics wasn't hugely talked about early on. I just think she was really new Labour. And, uh, you know, I find that really interesting that she was never into the hard left stuff and she was never like doctrinal about it. And, you know, it's never read Marx or Lenin or anything like that. She just had a real, you know, a view of life shaped from absolute, harsh life experience that was um you need a labor government to do all the things that labor governments do invest in the nhs and schools and and give people a way out but also you don't want the state running everything you know she was kind of she kind of took a dim view of the hard left so and thought it was all very performative and that they were immature um and i what's so odd is that it's identically my politics even though we never really explicitly talked about it it's almost as if though I just kind of picked that up by osmosis from her. Um, and a lot of people presume if you're a Blairite that you must be from kind of quite a well-heeled background. But my experience was always the opposite in Labour, was that it was the more working class end of the party that Blair identified with it, and that was reciprocal. And it was always um, the kind of loftier folk that got it, you know, really enjoyed all the kind of intellectual, slight nonsense, really, you know, the, the kind of indulgent side of it. And, and were more tempted towards the left of the party. So um, yeah. even though the public oddly doesn't kind of pick up on that as a thing, they think, oh, well, if you're a Blairite, you're kind of a bit like Tony Blair and you're well off and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I think it would have to be my mum, actually. And it, and that's only something that's dawned on me fairly recently. It's, um, it's quite nice how uh, over the course of this show, actually parents and mums in particular have had a massive shout out. Oh, that's <laughs> so that's that's yeah. reassuring then that, that that's something yeah. we all have in common. Yeah, yeah. And um well, yeah, it's funny what you say about Blair and just sort of the uh, stereotypes that exist, I think in particularly in the UK. Um it's so easy to place people in boxes or, you know, judge a book by its cover and it's yeah. Yeah, don't judge my book by its cover because um I was a lot <laughs> fatter when the picture was taken. So <laughs> So um you know, you, you obviously talked about your mum, picked your mum, mum beats Blair. <laughs> but <laughs> obviously Tony Blair was, and you mentioned Tessa Jowell, a very big influence as well. And, you know, you started at the age of seven, let's say seven, forget about nine, scrap nine. Um, you ended up being a political advisor. You worked for a number of MPs. Um, tell me a bit more about that. I just threw myself into Labour membership. I, I, I was just desperate. I never had a plan. You know, I think a lot of young people in politics, they get involved in young Labour or conservative future or, you know, Labour students and conservative students and stuff like that. And they kind of have a set path. You know, I would meet people when I was 18 in the Labour Party and they were just so fixated on becoming an MP and they had a really clear, and I really admired them for it. They had a really clear plan. I thought, I don't have that sort of thing. I just wanted to play whatever part I possibly could in in. Labour succeeding because I thought if Labour succeed then you know Britain becomes a fairer place so I joined Labour as soon as I could when I was 15 
just did everything. I wanted to leaflet, door knock, you know, like, you know, like the, like the zeal of the convert, I guess. You know, you join a new church, you want to get fully involved in it. So I was just doing everything. I would go to public meetings on the most boring things. I would just, I just loved being around it all. I, I just thought it was so invigorating and enriching and, and they treated you kind of like an adult, you know, and, and some of the MPs were really nice. They'd go out their way to talk to this sort of weird young guy who turned up on his own. So I had a great fondness for it. Um, and then, obviously, you start to get a bit older and you need a job. And I uh, I was like, well, I just applied for jobs with local. I would just write to MPs in Nottingham, Labour ones, and just say, have you got any work? And then I would just start doing a day here, a day there for them. And then just ended up working for MPs. And then after university, ended up working for the Labour Party directly. Uh, and that was really, really satisfying. You know, working for a party of government just towards the end of the Blair era and when Gordon Brown was just about to take over and when he did. A fascinating time. And that just felt like everything had happened so quick. You know, at the age of 14, I'd been sat at school with a couple of mates who'd kind of got into it as well. And then it felt like all of a sudden I was working for it. It felt like time had just passed so quickly. But that's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done work for Labour while we were in government. That was... Uh, even though I was a very, very small cog in the machine, you, you really, it's the most motivated I think I've ever been. You wake up every morning. It was like being in the army. You know, you really felt like you were sort of going out there to to kind of fight the good fight. You know, it was, it, it was a remarkable feeling. It was one of the best things I ever did. And who did you, who did you work for again? So the MPs I worked for, I worked for, I've worked for quite a few over the years. Um, I think I did a bit of work for John Heppel. These were all kind of around the Nottingham area. Paddy Tipping, the MP for Sherwood, who's now the um, uh, M- the Crime Commissioner for Nottinghamshire. Um, Liz Blackman, Erewash, Nick Palmer, Brockstow, uh, Andy Reid in Loughborough. And then when I worked for the party, I was what they call an organiser. So I was responsible for a whole swathe of marginal seats across the East Midlands. Corby, Northampton North, Lincoln. Uh, what was the other ones? Um, oh, God. There's a couple more. Corby, Lincoln, <laughs> Northampton North. Oh, I've forgotten now. But there were loads. And it was, it was. oh, my God. That was really stressful. Because that was all around the time that election, the election that didn't happen when Gordon Brown decided not to call it. Right. So we were just gearing up. The Labour Party at that point was financially basically ruined. And... <laughs> Oh God, like there was, there was barely any staff. And then we'd get sent out on by-elections as well. So that was like when people started dying or resigning or whatever. So I worked on <laughs> oh, Blind and Gwen. Like, I was just constantly getting seconded around the country whilst trying to get these marginal seats that were, you know, the ground was opening up underneath their feet. It was, I mean, that was, it became very, very stressful around that time because yeah. um, we didn't really feel like we could do the you know job properly and that's always dissatisfying whatever line of work you're in but um yeah so those MPs would have been Gillian Merrin, Phil Hope, Sally Keeble oh there's a couple I'm forgetting and on top of that you had to run like all the parliamentary selections and thing and the constitutional side of the party is always a nightmare and expulsions and things like that oh god Actually, I've I'm changed my mind. It was terrible. It was, it was one of the most... <laughs> It doesn't sound great. No. I mean, I'm sort of listening. Oh man. I'm so... But it's oh. a shaping experience. I'm amazed I didn't go bald or grey in my mid-twenties. <laughs> I was just like, I'm gonna have a heart attack at this rate. I couldn't believe that I was able to wake up in the morning sometimes. It was bedlam. It's really yeah. funny looking back on it, but my God. <laughs> yeah. And um and so, yeah, so I want to get onto your book, obviously, because there's just so much in there to unpick from. But before we go there, just let's talk about a place um, that, uh, you know, has had particular meaning to you. So the thing is, there's kind of, I've got, there's different options. And I, you know, it's one of those things, it's almost like being asked what your favourite Beatles song is. Like on a different day, you'd give a different answer, I think. Yeah. I kind of want to say Nottingham, but I think that's kind of like just obvious because that's where I grew up. But I think the House of Commons, uh, it, I absolutely love it. And I think that's had a huge um, impact on me. And obviously there's the old Churchill thing about, you know, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. But I think there's something about the chamber of the House of Commons that I really like. And I, it really disappoints me when 
MPs from working class backgrounds going there and saying, oh, it's designed to intimidate you. And I think it's not. I think it's beautiful. Like, I I go there on days off. And so this is so sad. I go there. Like, if I get a day off pre-COVID, I would just go to Parliament and sit in the public gallery and just like watch it for hours. We just go up there. And I know that's tragic. But I was like, I lo- no, I don't think that's tragic. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a little bit tragic. But <laughs> there is something beautiful about that. <laughs> I mean, there are- no, it's nice. I think you're. I yeah, I'd agree with you. It is. A, it is quite a magical, magical place. Where, where else can you go that looks that amazing? And just wander in for free and just sit there. You know, there are churches and stuff. Or the Natural History Museum, I guess. But there's people milling around there. Whereas with Parliament, you just go up on a quiet day. And you get to just watch a debate about stuff you haven't got a clue about. Or, you know, I haven't got a clue about. And you think, firstly, it's just an amazing thing to see. Like, the magic of Parliament has never worn off for me. I must have been in there a million times. And it's I always get a buzz from it. I think it's spectacular. And I love the yeah. fact that it's, like, where our democracy exists. And I love the fact that... It's confrontational enough to keep the government on their feet, but it's still respectful enough. And I think if you go in there on a day that's not Prime Minister's questions, you do see people talking reasonably to each other and having a kind of balanced debate. And you learn loads of stuff about what's going on in the world if you just go to a parliamentary debate. So I just think it has... And I just love the surroundings. I'm a sucker for, like, really old, beautiful buildings. Mm. And um, I just... I love being in there. And I don't feel intimidated at all. I'm like, this is a stage that's created, like, to help you. Like, this is great. I wouldn't feel intimidated in there. Well, I'd, I'd, I probably would a little bit, but that would just be, you know, the nerves of being in Parliament. But I don't think it's... I think it's, like, created to, to make it as positive as possible. I love it. I mean, there is the element that you are a comedian and get on stages and get in front of telly, so you're not okay, easily yeah. intimidated. But... I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just teasing, but I, I that's a fair not, point. You're not the average Joe, but I would agree with that. Actually, I think I think you're right, and it and it it does really add so much to uh, to the way we do politics. Yeah. And like, what better place to go and make your point? You know, rather than some like sterile conference center. Like, oh man great to be there like around leather and wood like it looks great yeah it definitely did pull me into british politics big time just my internship there i think most of the experience there you know the work i did was was really dull <laughs> fairly non- i can't I, was, I can't remember it's probably you know excel and spreadsheets and filling in data or whatever i can't even remember but what i do remember is watching the debates and sort of a buzz and then just walking through the building and getting lost and you know finding a new corridor and I just loved it and that's that's really what pulled me in really it's so cool and you think it looks great anyway but then you're like Churchill would have been down here Mm. and like Attlee and and you know Disraeli just like the history of it there's so much big history there yeah it's magical yeah no it it is yeah no I I totally hear what you're saying and I, and I agree um so moving on to your book it's called politically homeless yeah and um largely because you well we'll find out you were politically homeless but we'll move on to the current state but was that largely caused by Corbyn and the state of the Labour Party or does this sort of date pre-Corbyn um the Miliband years weren't great for me the Ed Miliband years that cheesed me off a bit Mm. Um, but yes, it is more to do with Labour actually, because Brexit I disagreed with, um, and I'm not a fan of it. But had the Labour Party at least been in a sensible position, I would have at least had a home. You know, I'd I'd have lost that referendum, but at least I would have felt like I still had a side in some way. But what annoyed me about the Miliband years was history was telling Labour that if you basically move to the left of New Labour, you don't win. And Ed Miliband knew this. More than I should have done, you know. He's been around longer than me and had been at you know senior levels, and just the vanity of someone who thinks, "Well, look, I'll, I'm going to be different. It's changed now. I can move us to the left and win." Really frustrated me because the public were telling them that Ed Miliband wasn't going to be prime minister, and, and again, that Ed Miliband wasn't good enough to be prime minister. It's just the blunt truth of it, and some people couldn't accept that. And the public were telling Labour that this wasn't going to work, and and Labour just soldiered on. 
as if the public were wrong. And um, I found it, it just, it made me really question why those people were in politics, because even though I don't doubt the sincerity of the fact that they're left wing and want the world to be a better place, how much do they really want it? Because surely, <laughs> like I come from a background of people who need, and I can't emphasize that word enough, a Labour government, like need a Labour government. And for, if you're indulging in anything that's not new Labour, you're not going to win. So then you're kind of, you're taking victory, you know, you're taking defeat rather as an occupational hazard. You go, well, it makes us feel a bit better. And, and that's what really frustrated me as well was the Labour Party at that point just wasn't prepared to listen to difficult truths about where it needs to be to win. And I think Ed Miliband then created the conditions for Corbyn, you know, changed the leadership rules, but also he, he shifted Labour to a position where it was far more open to someone like Corbyn than it would have been without him. Um, so even though Ed Miliband is a lovely guy and a gentleman, uh, I, you know, he is partly responsible for the state that Labour got themselves into. Mm. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you Team David? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm Team New Labour. You know, I'm tragically Team New Labour in every way. Um, yeah, he would have been so much better. Um, and he was clearly the sort of senior partner of the two and the more talented. But that's the Labour Party for you. But actually, I don't think... I think in that one, I wasn't massively into that. I think actually I preferred Andy Burnham at that stage, even though uh, he was kind of slightly to the left mm. of where... of where, Although he sort of emerged as more left-wing since. But... I kind of felt that one of the things that was the problem with New Labour was the kind of, the style of it had kind of gone out of date a bit. And I felt that David and Ed were both part of a style and a presentation of politics that um, people were starting to get slightly cynical about, myself included. And they wanted something just that felt a bit more human. And maybe that was an indulgent desire, but I think in the long term that's been proved right. Um Labour needed to be disciplined in those early years because what had gone before had been Labour being an ungovernable rabble. But actually, as, as Labour became that party of government, I think mm. you needed people to kind of be themselves a bit and not talk in weird political language. And I think the public was falling out of love with that. And I was. That's why I loved Alan Johnson and Tessa Jowell. These were like new Labour people who could talk like ordinary people. And I think the Miliband brothers as a kind of unit, yeah. felt like almost they were from a different place. Now, David would have been a lot better than Ed, but I think there was still an issue around. And also with Labour, you know, they're, they're both really talented, clever people, but there's a kind of dynasty around that that I always I always struggle with. You know, the dynasties of the left, the Bens, even though they're all really talented, great people. It's really odd that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's kid working for John McDonnell, and you just think, are these people really getting these jobs through a free and fair open process? Because surely you're the people more than any that are meant to be doing that right. And jobs for the kids, I think, always looks bad, even if they're really talented, you know. And Hilary Benn is one of my favourite politicians. And, you know, as just as sporting families, it can be in the blood. I'm sure it's the same in politics. So it's going to happen a bit. But I always, it always makes me think, oh, man. You know, was there not another surname out there that was available? You know, I, I could we not sort of widen the gene pool a bit of the people that we look up to in the Labour movement? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And so you have interviewed countless, um, countless number of people in Westminster and obviously around Westminster, which gives you a great sense of um, what these people are thinking. And how, you know, I just wondered, like, how many of you know the people that you've spoken to were experiencing sort of similar feelings as to political homelessness you know not feeling at home within any one political party i think in the last few years certainly people around the center left that share my broad values really did feel totally bereft and that was that was you know that manifested itself in Chuck Ramuna, Luciana Berger, uh, Chris Leslie, Anna Subri, Sarah Wollaston, Heidi Allen, um, and the others leaving their parties and forming that new party, which you know, didn't last. But I thought it was really important that that happened because until I think the public, you know, they can hear politicians on the radio going, "Oh, Jeremy Corbyn's not very good," and if he doesn't do this, then I'm going to leave. And then they don't leave, and they go, "Well, either then." 
that means it's not as bad as you're making out or why haven't you got the courage of your convictions? So I thought it was really important that, and it was the same on the Tory side, I thought it was really important that those people left those parties at that time and, and said to the public, politics, this, these two parties are deeply dysfunctional and it's the most dysfunctional they've been for generations and we're not going to stand for it. And that was a mixture of things. It was the political directions of those parties. It was the culture that the leaders allowed to fester in those uh, movements. And it was also just the general nastiness that had been effectively, not necessarily sanctioned, although in some cases perhaps, but just allowed and not challenged. And I thought the, the foundation, you know, the, the foundation of that independent group for change wasn't just about Labour being too left wing and the Tories being too populist and pro Brexit. It was also it was a reaction against modern political culture, which is kind of defined by nastiness and bullying. And I thought, um, you know, those people were definitely politically homeless. And, and one of the nights I did one of the live shows that we recorded um, was with some of those people, with Mike Gapes and with uh, Chucker. And they were just, it wasn't even that they were trying to kind of, you know, start a new party that was going to win elections. It was just the relief. It was like they'd left an abusive relationship. The relief on their faces that they didn't have to defend Jeremy Corbyn anymore or, or be subject to his supporters anymore. And on the Tory side, deal with the, the real Brexit zealots and the bullying that had gone on there. And they were, these were just really good, really talented people who couldn't hack it anymore. And I found them to just be so impressive and hopeful. It was a shame it didn't work out, but I think they played their part in helping if you, eventually the Labour Party come to its senses. Yeah. Well, I totally forgotten what the political party was called. So <laughs> I think most people have. I think members of it me probably of the name. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> I think it was the independent group, then it was the independent group for change. Then it was change. Then change. that was was that legally not available or something? Yeah, because of the petition website. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, tricky. Good on them. Tricky. Um your book also touches on what you call the curse of complacency. What yes. what do you mean by that? Well, just that you think I mean the numerous things and it's from a uh, primarily a labor perspective, but if you look at what happened to labor in Scotland and in in places where I worked like Stoke-on-Trent, this sense that, oh, well, you know, these places have always been Labour, they'll always be Labour. You only need to look at not just Scotland and Stoke, but the, the so-called red wall at the last election and the inroads that the Tories made there actually in the last two elections um, to see that if you just take things for granted, and, and that's just in so many ways, is um, firstly your relationship with the electorate, you, you put at risk, even at your, even at, and you see it with the SNP now at the moment, you think you're making the sorts of mistakes that Labour made in their pomp is that, you're presuming that this is where public opinion is always going to be. And the the kind of entitlement that comes with high levels of popularity, you sow the seeds of your own destruction because you behave in a way that basically that you're almost above scrutiny. You're seeing this all now with the Salmond Inquiry and other things, is that it just makes people a bit too cocky. And in retrospect, that looks really bad. You kind of, kind of get away with it at the time because you're slightly popular, but... Um, you know, those tweets will be around forever and people will live to regret some of the things I think they've said. And that goes for all parties, but that's a kind of really good, interesting current case study. So it's about never take public support for granted, but it's also about the culture of the parties you preside over. Jeremy Corbyn should have been expelled from the Labour Party back in the day. He voted against the last Labour government 428 times, but they thought, <laughs> you know what? It'll be fine. He's just a kind of beardy lefty. He's harmless. He's not worth having a row over. That bloke ended up leading the Labour Party and almost leading it to extinction. So even at your most popular moments, deal with take every problem seriously, even if at the time you think, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's not really, is it worth having a row over? Corbyn kind of proves that these outsiders who can appear like, you know, a mere nettle sting actually can become quite a severe wound. So and of course, this is all counterfactuals, isn't it? So let's say Labour did expel Corbyn. That could have caused a huge row and that could have led to all sorts of other things. And historians might look back and people like me might go, why did they kick him out? You know, he wasn't going to do anything. So <laughs> I accept that there's another world in which you kind of hit the snooker balls and they scatter in a different direction. But I think things like that, when it's about defining the parameters of what your party stands for, don't allow people in who are, at, you know, frankly, are outside of the tent. Jeremy Corbyn really 
has not really been in tune with modern Labour values for a very long time, is far more at home in the Socialist Worker Party, and, and that's where he should have been kind of sent to. Um, so it's yeah. just about things like that, about don't let popularity um, blind you to, to the problems that, that can develop quite quickly. That is very wise. Very well, wise. <laughs> it's it's not the most insightful point. <laughs> but it's one that, you know, Labour people need to learn from, I think. You are obviously a comedian as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, it's like you're not sure. You're like, it says here, comedian. but It says comedian. I mean, yeah. I can't say I think you're very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I am... Um, I obviously, I'm I'm a big fan, and I do think you always make me laugh, um, oh, whether you. it's in conversation or on your show. So you are a natural comedian. I just wondered, you know, to me, it feels like having a sense of humour is fundamental to having a sense of perspective in life. And when you look around at the moment, in particular, in sort of a conversation around politics, I just wonder, do you sometimes feel that we have lost our sense of humour? That is such a good point about humour showing that you've got a good perspective on life. I've never thought of it like that. But I think you're absolutely right. And with politics, it's become... I mean, obviously, elements of politics have always been serious because um, there are serious parts of politics that is not appropriate to be uh, making quips about. Um, but yes, and I think that's not just in politics. I think that there are elements of that sort of out there, particularly on social media as well, where... I think some people want to be offended and they can't... People have just become really po-faced. I, mean, I think the majority of people aren't. I think the public are fine. Um, but sadly, I think whenever you have political discussions, especially on social media, I think actually people pretend to be more offended and annoyed now than they used to be because I think they realise that offence is a kind of currency and it means your opponent has to apologise and you kind of it's a quick way to get the moral high ground. Whereas mm. actually, you know, morals are important, but it's an expression of a fundamental misunderstanding of what, what politics is and about what people are and, and where their politics comes from. Your opponents aren't bad people. They just have a different perspective to you. And treating them as if they must be bad and wrong is, is where you end up in this sort of problem that we've got now. It's like, well, you must be evil. You must have said something horrible that means I shouldn't even have to engage with you. And that actually says far more about the people that kind of think like that because it shows a real inability to even entertain the idea that you might be wrong or to explore an opposing idea and perhaps see the merits of it, um, let alone not think that someone is like the devil just because they're either, you know, left wing, right wing, leave or remain. Um, so, yes, I, I completely agree. And you're bringing a healthy dose of comedy to politics. I mean, you have been doing that for a while. Um, for your live shows and obviously your podcast and um, uh, you often appear on Dave and stuff. But now you are also involved with Spitting Image, which launched a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. you are, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> Boris, Trump and Starmer. That's right. Yeah, I do those three. I voice <laughs> those three and I'm one of the writers on the show as well. So I'm I'm deeply involved. That That is quite the trio <laughs> I mean, that's that's brilliant um now obviously you're not going to get away with answering the next question about being in one of those characters but um <laughs> <laughs> how did you get from being in politics to comedy I'd always done comedy on the side no no, no it, we need we oh. need you in character oh you want me in character <laughs> oh well pick, Absolutely. pick. Well, well, okay who do I Okay, let's do let's do Boris. Boris, first. yeah. I've kind of want to hear all three now. Let's start with Boris. Okay, I just want to see. It's great. Come on, honour to be with you today, Laura. A great luminary of the of the rights and right Tory party, and indeed our entire. Anyway, yes, so I, I began uh, uh, doing comedy at uh, the age of 16 uh, 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 in Nottingham uh, and always did it. It feels odd to be talking, to be saying it as Boris, <laughs> talking about my life. It feels I'm really trying odd. 
so hard to laugh silently because I'm actually like started to cry with tears uh, of laughter. Well, you very, the honourable lady, very generous uh, as always. Uh, but I move on, uh, Mr. Speaker, to the substantive uh, point, uh, and I can see a chuntering from me. Uh, but you know, he kind of mumbles and stuff. And uh, he, I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's a, I have to say, as an impressionist, he's a joy to do. There's so many funny imagine. noises that he. Uh, you, you, you can't, uh, anyway, uh, right. <laughs> Uh, yes, and I think we are. I think we can do that. And I, I know I, I, I really do. Uh, so yes, um, uh, right. Um, That's so, right. so how much? How much do you study these characters? Imagine quite a lot of time goes into that. I've just watched them a lot anyway. Uh, I think part of the reason why I've ended up impersonating so many politicians is I just watch so much politics, and they're the voices that are in my head all the time. They're yeah. the people that I'm consuming, and I watch it. I really take it in. You know, even when I was just getting into it i could always recall speeches kind of word for word you know they they made such an impression on me it was like going to a football match or something they just i I would really take it in you know the theater of it so politicians were a lot of the ones that i started doing so then boris obviously been around a long time he's got big uh you got um you know (laughs) text and and traits that he has that are really fun to do you know because there is something inherently comedic about the way that he presents himself obviously compared to other politicians so yeah um he's i I really enjoyed it and obviously you know i I think there's something about uh, it's always nice to do voices that sound very different to yours so he's got a real i um Someone said the other day it's quite a nice beefy sound, but real. Uh, there's a heft, uh, but also yeah. uh, capable of being very uh, sort of gentle uh, that he has. <laughs> and you think, oh, yeah, you lovely, well spoken uh, chap but with the shambles and, uh, and all that sort of thing. So you just think, yeah. oh, this is brilliant. Now, it sounds nothing like me. You know, it's a real pleasure to kind of go to a yeah. different world through his voice, really. Um, and what about all, yeah. um, um, Keir Starmer? He must be, is he much harder to do? Yeah, obviously there's kind of less to hang your hat on with him. So he, um, I I mean, I just started from the basic starting point that I thought he sounded like he had a bit of a blocked nose. He sounds a bit nasally. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what always helps as well is to sort of say the sorts of things that they would say in a way that they would say them. So then that sort of helps carry it a bit. So, you know, he's kind of just (laughs) sort of predictably sort of states the obvious, I guess, a lot of the time. I agree with the government, uh, Mr. Speaker, on, on the things that the government has got right. Uh, but I just remind the Prime Minister, I disagree with him on the things that he's got wrong. And you think, he sort of manages <laughs> to make it sound. You go, yeah, well, that's perfectly reasonable. Why can't That's really on? good. Well, the most obvious thing you could say. That you know, is really good. That is really good. Uh, it's slight exasperation, actually. No, he's very controlled. But I, I, I remind the Prime Minister, you know, it's that he does get slightly kind of squawky at times, which is fun, you know, vocally. Um, yeah. But he is a very different, you know, oral, aural experience to, to Boris. Yeah. And, and uh, finally, uh, the President. Yeah. <laughs> he is the most fun because that, I mean, he is ludicrous in the way that he speaks and and the puppet of his is, is i think is my favorite because it really can't. they're so human those puppets i went to the studio the other week and saw them up close and what's odd is they're obviously caricatures but they capture something about the human soul so you kind of feel like you've met them so i kind of sort of came back almost starstruck that i'd met trump Boris, Elton John, Beyonce, um, <laughs> the Pope. I was like, what a day I've had, the Queen. Because, <laughs> because the eyes move so naturally. I can't say how surreal it is. But with Trump, obviously there's a the kind of, it's very beautiful, very, we're going to do great things, by the way, and I know we're going to have a beautiful, beautiful time and all the kind of stuff that he bigly and all the kind of silly words he uses. But for this, in a way, it's so surreal because you're voicing Trump, but actually you're voicing a puppet of Trump. So it's a kind of version of him. So, and it's the same with all of them. Is that I kind of quite like to make them a bit more cartoony and kind of. So I make him, um, I make him far more kind of rash. Well, maybe he's not more rash, but like in terms of his noises. So whenever he's like he's shouting at people, it's kind of ah, you know, almost like babyish. <laughs> Mike, get over here! Yeah, and kind of like wailing, and I, I, I kind of make him squeak a lot. So I go, Mike, we can't trust these people. They're sneaky. And kind of just have him do really silly noises. In um, the very first episode of this podcast, Nick Timothy was on. Uh, oh. He used to work for Theresa May. And yeah. 
went to the White House with Theresa May to meet Trump. It was quite early on when he just become president. Yeah. And um, he gave us a bit of a scoop by saying how um, he witnessed at the sort of the fancy lunch they had that Trump picked up from the his national security advisor that Trump uh, Putin had asked for a call, and he apparently bellowed down. Um, he sort of shouted down his national security advisor in front of the British Prime Minister, <gasps> saying, "If Putin wants to speak to me, you put him free." So maybe you could. Give us some um, a bit of an idea as to what he would sound saying that. <laughs> when he says when he says Putin, the the, the trailer that we had um, for the show is where they have a naked fight in a sauna, and it's Trump, Boris, and Putin, and Trump <laughs> and Boris are in there, sort of naked from the waist up, and then Putin comes in, and they just, I had to just sort of shout Putin as Trump, but sound surprised, so I kind of went. <laughs> like he was really going <laughs> to see him. Putin! You know, it's so much fun to do. So, if Putin, what is it? If Putin wants to talk to me? If, yeah, you just put him through. If Putin wants to talk to me, just put him through. And, yeah. But I'm making him sound, you know, I kind of screwing my face up when I'm doing that. But if he was more friendly, if Putin wants to talk to me, you can put him straight through. Put him straight through. <laughs> I'm ready. Oh my God. I could listen to you do this all day. <laughs> It's so funny. It's so funny. But so how how did you, you know, when did you make the sort of actual sort of shift into comedy? It was about 10 years ago. So I'd, I'd, I'd always done it on the side. I did my first gig when I was 16 in Nottingham and just was doing it as a hobby, really. But obviously at the back of your mind, you think, oh, I wonder if this will ever go anywhere. I worked in politics throughout a lot of that time. I couldn't do stand up. I didn't have the time and it, I didn't really feel it'd be appropriate. But it was only after working in politics, I thought I should do more comedy about politics, really, because that's where my real passion lies. And they say you should talk about what you know. And there wasn't that much political comedy around at that point. So I really started majoring on that and making satirical shows. And um, I'm just really lucky that that at the time I was kind of edging out of politics, I then got a job in public affairs in, in London, and then started to pick up kind of radio work. So then I was able to get a show on Talk Sport, a kind of late night show, and that meant that I could ditch the day job and then gig the rest of the week. And then from then on, it kind of moved quite quickly, really. So I started writing on other telly shows and getting on other shows and things. And um, obviously in the last few years, really my live shows were like Trump and Boris really were the centerpieces of them. So Spitting Image came back just at the right time where I was the guy that was doing Trump and Boris all the time. So it, the timing of it has just been so lucky. Yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Um. There are lots of anecdotes that I know you have up your sleeve and some of them are in your, <laughs> in your book. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones that I know you cover is, I think you said you spoke to the Prime Minister number number 10 was being drunk. Oh, God. Yeah, and that wasn't what, just What once. was that about? Well, yeah, so we would get invited to number 10 when, when Labour were in all the time. So there'd be various different receptions, even just as, like, members. I think... I went to like a young Labour thing there. And then when you're working with a party, you know, after any sort of by-election, you would have receptions there. So when when Labour in government, they'd invite you there quite a lot. So the first one I went to was a young Labour reception. I was working for a, a Labour MP. And I think it was like young people working for Labour MPs type thing. You, we get there. I mean, it's incredible. Like I'd walk past the bottom of Downing Street before trying to see the front door. And then all of a sudden you're just walking up. I think that's the coolest bit actually is the, the bit between the gate and the front door, the walk, the first time you do it, you think, wow. Yeah. Um, it's like getting on the pitch at Wembley or something. You're just like, oh, so few people ever get this perspective. And then the front door's in front of you going. Anyway, I was there with a mate of mine, Pete from school, and I think he'd done some work for Labour MP as well. And we, uh, they give you free lager. <laughs> so we were like, we were like uh -oh. 18, 19. We we're like, this is amazing. And I think also just, you know, the exuberance of it. Not so much nerves, just the excitement. And obviously, when you're drinking, when you're excited, you can't really feel the effects of it. You're just slinging it down. And uh, we were just loving it, just battered. And then they said, uh, the Prime Minister will be here in three minutes. So I was like, oh, God. And then at that moment, realised I was slaughtered, like bad drunk, and just like, oh, no, this is a problem. So I'm like, right, I'm going to go to the toilet. I'm going to have a quick pee, splash water on my face. My mate Pete had to physically cling on to the mantelpiece in Downing Street to keep himself upright. Like 18, <laughs> like we must have looked like absolute clowns. So I leg it out of the room, 
I just go, excuse me, mate, do you know where the toilets are? And it was Tony Blair. I was just like, oh, oh no. flipping. You know, this is like a nightmare. And he said, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> he said, well, um, you know, follow the stairs down to the bottom and uh, it's the first corridor on the left and the first door on the right. I said, oh, thanks, <laughs> Prime Minister. And then um, I was just like, oh, this is now awful. This is just embarrassing, you know. So then I was like, right, I've learned my lesson. And I, I, at that point, thought I'd probably never go back. And then a few years later, when I worked for the party, we'd go back. And they were just like, everyone would just get, like, battered. And it was Stella. They used to give us Stella. Like, what are you doing? Like, at least pick weak lager. So I was, I got, I think, I don't, I'm not sure I ever went to, oh, I went to number 10 once sober. That was it, when I was working in public affairs and we were lobbying Gordon Brown. Um but I think under Blair, every time I went, I was leathered. I went to Checkers for Blair's leaving do, and that was, I think that's one of the most drunk I've ever been. Wow, that sounds like a great place to be. A great, great party. What a party. So they had us out in a marquee on the garden, and they had like all the food and drink out there. It was for Labour staff, and it was Blair's leaving do. <laughs> Basically, as the day wore on, it was really hot. It was a really hot day. And we're just coming in minibuses from like all the different offices from around the country. And then I think we're all going to London afterwards, some of us. And I, I booked a hotel. I was staying at a mate's house, whatever. But anyway, we just got absolutely thrashed. And then towards the end of the evening, it was a beautiful summer's night. So it was drawing out. You're in the countryside. And uh, Cherie Blair goes, oh, who wants to have a look in the house? And I was like, yeah, there's maybe about, I don't know, 80 to 100 of us. And uh, Tony Blair goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry, you can't go in the house. I think the the trust that runs it has said that, you know, we're not allowed visitors at the moment. And Shreve went, when I sod that, we're out of here in a fortnight. Who wants to see it? And literally, people were like marauding around the corridors, just like stampeding. Like it was like, it was like Grange Hill. People were just going in every room, like opening stuff. Like there was, I went into a room that had Napoleon's tea table in it, his briefcase, uh, Oliver Cromwell's death mask, like the the hit, I think there was like Cromwell's sword from the Battle of Naseby or something was in there. There's like oh. there's so much history you can't take it in. You're like, oh my god, and it's all the actual stuff, you know. Just and then towards the end, they were like clearing us out, and I'd left my jacket in the garden. I was like, I need to get. I said, oh no, you can't go out the back door. You need to leave around the side, and it's a stately home. I was like, but why are you making me go around the long way anyway? They were making us go around the long way because Tony Blair was stood on the front step saying goodbye to you as you left, which was a lovely touch. But I was absolutely like gone at this point. And I I have a vague memory of this, but my mate who was behind me always reminds me of it. He said, you poked him on the chest. I went, two words, mate. Fucking legend. And um, <laughs> I think he said, I think it was horrifying. He went, I mean, thank you very much. Um, well, look, um, I'm sure you're a legend as well. And uh, yeah, have a great evening and let's win a fourth term. And uh, then I went running around with my jacket. But like to this day, like even recall, re- recalling it now is just, it's so embarrassing. Like drunk, slightly leery, like, right, mate. like, it's a prime minister. Like, what are you doing? That's oh, so funny. You know what? Nice. I, I didn't put that one in the book, partly because the book could have just been a load of embarrassing drinking stories. And I thought that would kind of like lower the tone. But also <laughs> I knew my mum was definitely going to read the book. And I was like, one or two drinking stories is fine, but if she thinks I did that at Checkers, I think she'd be really disappointed. Oh, no, that's that's very funny. Well, I was going to ask you, like, whether you've had any out of body experiences, you know, at what you were hearing or seeing, you know, any moments. Um, that sounds like one of them, but yeah, I mean, maybe on a slightly more serious note, like, have you sort of witnessed things where you just think this can't be real? Like, this can't be how politics is done or how this country is run or oh yeah yeah i think if, if you work in politics long enough you see that a lot you see a lot of tantrums i never saw anything but i never worked like closely with the top people but you would see tantrums on visits and things or from candidates i just think oh god do you think well everyone has to be so well behaved in politics i was petrified of ever saying the wrong thing in politics when i worked in it um because of the, the damage it can do um so i was always shocked when like I mean, on a by-election, candidates always go mad. I remember one where <laughs> he was getting so annoyed with us. It's a parliamentary by-election. I think it was the first one I worked on. And uh, 
there's always the thing in the by-election that's true of every party. The candidate at some point always feels like they're not being listened to and the party's running it and this is my campaign and, you know, you come up here from London and you think you know it all. That, that always happens. And yeah. it's just about how you manage it. And um, But one day we went to this part of town and he was waiting for us with these um, volunteers. He went, you're late. And we weren't late. We were five minutes early. But we were just after him. I said, well, we've still got five minutes. He said, well, we've been waiting here in the cold. I said, okay. I was like, he wants an argument. He said, right, where's the leaflets for today? So we got the leaflets. He looked at them. He went, I'm not delivering those. I said, I said what? He goes, uh, yeah, no, I don't like the messaging. No. I said, okay, we'll deliver them. And he just literally took them. And we're talking hundreds of these things. And he just flung them in the air. You know how people do like with money on films when they like win the lottery yeah. or something. And yeah. it just like rained leaflets. And then he started kicking a wall, someone else's wall, like a voter's wall. I was like, what are you doing? So someone had to basically, I would like remember them putting a blanket around with it, around him, but there's no way there was like a blanket there. It was like, they kind of just like held him to stop him kicking stuff. And I just thought, oh man. And he didn't win either. I was like, if anyone saw this, and then we all had to pick up the leaflets for him. I was like, oh, you petulant child. But there were times when I remember being at. Feels actually know, lucky escape. He doesn't sound like he's very, you know, MP material. Or, or does he, actually? <laughs> and he managed to make his way. <laughs> he sounds oh, exactly God. like the sort of person. But yeah, I mean, there were times where you'd witness... Um, I remember being at... It was the it was the local elections launch. We had it in Nottingham. It was Blair and Brown. I think it must have been one of the last things they did. It must have been that year. So it would have been 2007. And we had them at a um, GMB, trade union thing. And they came and did a kind of... Um, campaign committee room but like with media invited so they kind of were phone calling people and they were stuffing envelopes and they're doing it together and it was really cool and I managed to get my mum and sister in and uh we, like, we got nice photos and it was like and it was towards the end of the Blair's time but there was a bit where they were both waiting in a corridor and it was just Blair and Brown me someone else and basically I was literally on door duty when it was ready I was just to open the door so they could just walk straight through it but I think they were going through not together. I think one was going first and introducing the other and just watching them together, you know, when they're basically in the zone about to go on stage, but just the two of them in a corridor. And I think there was someone else there because they were talking and like Blair would, they basically wouldn't acknowledge each other or, or more to the point, Gordon basically was like not engaging. So um, it was kind of weird where, Blair would sort of be like, oh, yeah, I mean, I think we had that the other week in um, Leeds or Manchester, wherever we were. And sort of, got, it was almost like Gordon just wasn't in the conversation, you know, he just wouldn't engage with it. Now, maybe he was just getting himself in the zone. He was going on first or whatever, but I was just like, oh, man, it was sort of so strange to kind of see them together um, right at that point, you know, at the point where Gordon's almost going to become prime minister. It's sort of months away at that stage. Uh, that was... That was like a, a thing where you're like, you've really seen behind the scenes. I mean, there have been other times when, often it's on the podcast where, I had it with Michael Heseltine, where he's sort of on stage at this cabaret bar in London. And you're like, that's Michael Heseltine talking to me. That's yeah. Mike. It's almost like you're talking to, it's almost like when Sam Neill sees the T-Rex in, in Jurassic Park for the first time. And he sort of like fumbles his hat and his aviators off. You're like, Michael Heseltine is here. You know, you you kind of pinch yourself. Not that he's an idol of mine or anything, although I have huge admiration for him, but you're like, he feels like a figure from just such a different time. And now he's here and he's sat next to me and we're chatting about stuff, about how he doesn't know how to use an iPhone. You're like, this is just, sur those moments are kind of surreal where you go, <laughs> yeah. holy shit, it's Michael Heseltine. But you can't yeah. say that. You have to go, great answer, Michael. I'm moving on to something else. You know, you have to kind of yeah. contain yourself sometimes. No, I, I can imagine. And I, I actually once had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Heseltine for a uh, magazine I used to edit. And um, yeah, that was, it, he's so tall as well. Yes, yes. He's like really quite intimidating, isn't he? Like in, yeah. a, in, a, in a fabulous way, but in a, he's very impressive. He, he, he looks fantastic. He's obviously still got that hair, the eyebrows. Mm. Lovely voice, slightly softer eyes than you'd imagine. Yeah, lovely sort of way of speaking. Um, but also, but he is, and you think, well, I thought old people were meant to get shorter. You're like, imagine what he was like in his thirties. He must be about eight foot tall. Yeah, incredible looking fella. Yeah. Now, before I forget, we haven't covered an object yet. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> what 
I mean, this is this is the hardest of the three, I think. But is there an object that has impacted your thinking, politics, life more generally? I thought about this this morning because I thought I haven't got an answer for that yet. And I think it's a football. Oh, and yeah. I think the reason why is I think in sport, there's so much you learn about life. And I think in football, I see all the things that make me um, left-wing and all the things that kind of are more sort of like not necessarily Tory values, because I don't think they are, but like things that aren't just, you know, that put that put me around the centre. So like sport is the ultimate meritocracy. Like you're either the fastest person at 100 metres or you're not. And like it's measured and um, it's provable. You're like, that is the best person. And and we all want to see the best compete against the best. Um, so in that regard, like no matter where you're from, and in football, I think that's particularly true. Like if you're a talented young footballer, and I know it doesn't happen for everyone, but the infrastructure we have in this country now is like if you're a talented young kid, no matter what your background, you can really succeed in football and have an amazing life. So I think there's that. I think there's a meritocratic angle I like about it. There's the communal angle of like, where else do you get together? And obviously not at the moment, but with 30, 40, 50,000 people every weekend all in one place and just enjoy a sense of community and identity. And just the escapism and the fact that life is meant to be fun at times. And I think football, for me, encapsulates all those things, is it's great to see the best against the best. You wouldn't want to live like... You wouldn't want the rules of communism applied to sport where every game has to be a draw. You want to see the best succeed, and you root for individuals to make the best of their lives. And through making the best of their lives, they improve you know, um, our collective experience because they do it for their club that we support or for the country you know, on a, on a bigger level. So... I think all the things, you know, so many of my values about life, maybe it's just coincidence that they're sort of contained within football, but football's a huge part of my life. And the things that I really enjoy about it is the day out. It's seeing friends and it's the sense of community and identity and that this is our place and that some part of my personality is wrapped up in the identity of, of being from Nottingham and, and that they represent us on the field and that's important. So I think that um you know the, the, and the fact that there should be rules and they should be evenly applied and things like that you know that's that's my attitude to life you know cheating is bad and and cheat should be punished and i think yeah, uh, although there's quite a lot of that in football <laughs> well there is a lot in, well yeah, there is in every sport there's a I lot think. of that in everywhere i guess yeah you're right. and i think with football obviously because it's the most watched because there's so much pressure on it because there's so much at stake financially you know, if any sport had the coverage and the and the money and the success of football, you would get the same results. Um, just as with politics, you know, it's not that politicians are more corrupt or more corruptible than than the rest of the public. But if you put, you know, a weighted sample of 650 people in the House of Commons and let them live by the rules of the old expenses system, you'd have got similar results. And I really think that. So, you know, until you've until people have sort of lived the life of football, and obviously, as we're finding out. A lot of our young footballers are really impressive people. People like Marcus Rashford, who've done so much social yeah. good with their platform. So yeah. I think people are kind of, I think football's rehabilitating itself during this period in quite an impressive way. Yeah. To end off, I've got some quick fire questions. For oh, you. these are always the scariest. Don't worry. Okay. Nothing, nothing to worry about. Okay. <laughs> I just wondered if you could pick any piece of legislation that, you know, would be put on the statute books, say tomorrow, what would it be? Oh wow, that is a great question. That is a really good question because it's it's kind of there's such a good mix of things you could go for. Um, I think education's for me is like the you know quite Tony Blair, but it's the best economic policy there is. So I think I don't know what I would do in terms of legislation for that, but I think I would legislate for. So, uh, oh god I, I'm sort of thinking out loud here but certainly for something that if schools are failing like a far more rapid um takeover either you know either by um the, the sort of department not the department oh god I'm getting bogged down I, I'm overthinking this but I guess I guess I would sort of take over failing schools far quicker yeah and and pass legislation to allow that the legislation yeah. may already exist and i maybe demonstrate my ignorance of the matter either that or pass a law that um, nottingham forest can only ever be in the premier league and never be relegated ever again <laughs> exactly that's and more, and that's more it. and if you could be a fly on the wall in any room where where would you want to be I'm sort of tempted to say boris johnson's bedroom but um i think <laughs> 
I think, oh man, I mean, the Oval Office at the moment would be incredible, but I'd, I'd yeah. want to be a fly with a mask. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, are flies immune to COVID? They probably are. They've got quite strong bellies. So, no uh, I think either the Oval Office, or you know, it would be those great moments in history. I think if if I could sort of pick uh, a different time, I think um, I think in the in Churchill's bunker would be amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be incredible. And uh, and finally, what is the best advice you have ever been given? <sighs> These are brilliant questions. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Very pleased to hear that. I've so many good bits of advice. You know what? Actually, and this is this is um, it is the best bit of advice that immediately comes to mind. Actually, was uh, from my agent, and he came to see me. I'd signed to, so I'm represented by a management company called Avalon, and they came, nice plug. Yes, but they're very very good. Um, but they, <laughs> I was I was so John Thode runs Avalon. He's the, he's the, he's sort of the boss of it, and he's my agent now. But I was signed by one of his um, staff years ago and uh, he came to see my first Edinburgh show and we went for a drink afterwards. And my first Edinburgh show was a mixture of a bit of politics stuff, but a bit of other stuff, sort of generic stand-up. And he said to me, he said, um, just concentrate on the politics stuff now and uh, you'll get where you want to go a lot quicker. And mm. I did. And I think that's one of the best bits of advice I've ever been given because it really... I really then started to like forge a really specific career out of that. That I think, you know, I, had I kind of been foot half in, foot half out, I think I probably wouldn't have got, I don't think I'd be doing stuff like spitting image now. So I, I think he was absolutely right. And I just thought it was really, I think as well with advice, you have to be in the mood to hear it. I think there's probably, mm. I've probably been given arguably better advice than that, but I might not have, I don't remember it because at the time I may have brushed it off, but I think that was just such a really good bit of advice and I took it. And um, I, th I think it's I think it's benefited me. So there you go. A, a sort of disappointingly specific and practical piece of advice. No, that's that's brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on, Matt. It's been real fun. Really. Fun. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. And I, I you know what, I, I, I'm annoyed with myself because I feel like that. Leg I don't think I've given a good enough answer to that legislation question. I think I'm going to be having my dinner later, and, and it's going to occur to me a really good answer. So, so to listeners of this don't judge me on that you can always tweet i will i probably will yeah thank you for listening if you liked the episode please subscribe and leave a review and i'd also love to hear your ideas for questions and guests you can get in touch via twitter at laura round or you can email me via podcast at bigtent.org.uk and don't forget to become a friend of big tent using the discount code podcast thank you until next time 